Wow, man, Heidi, that was very good. Man, I do remember when she was this big. I used to play with her and her brother Tam, and man, uh, proud of her. It's good. Good morning. (laughs) Good to see everybody again. I missed y'all last week. It's good to be back. Appreciate Danny. Uh, preaching and bringing the word that he did, and I was talking about this morning, I was talking to somebody about how it is so good to, when I'm gone, uh, to know that the pulpit is in good hands. I mean, that is such a good feeling. Um, I, just, I guess if you've not been there, you don't really understand, but, but there was a time where I couldn't really say that, you know, but it, it is good now, Then and Danny is so good, and others that have filled in lately, I'm just so thankful that the Lord has put people here that, I mean, if, if one is down, somebody else just picks up and keeps going. That's, that's how you know you got a healthy church and that God is moving. It's, uh, everybody's getting in on it. So it's so good. Well, this morning we're going to continue our series in First Thessalonians. So if you have your Bibles, open up there to chapter 4 once again. We are going to finish chapter 4 with a topic that I normally would not choose to preach on. And the only reason I'm doing it today is because it's just the next thing in First Thessalonians. And I could just skip over it, but I think that would be a kind of wimpy thing to do. So we're just going to go right at it. First Thessalonians 4, we're going to pick up in verse 13. So let's all stand together and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. With the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let's pray. God, I pray that your words, Lord, from, from your word here, God, they, they would comfort us. Just knowing who we belong to. God, I pray that you would speak to all of our hearts this morning. Lord, those that know you, God, I pray that you would draw us closer to you through this. Those who who don't know you, Lord, I pray that they would become aware of that this morning. And today be the day that they become new. Uh, Jesus, we just want your will to be done and for you to be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, the reason why I said this isn't a topic that I would normally just choose to preach on is, um, is a couple of things. Number one, uh, dealing with end times stuff or what we call eschatology, which is the study of the end times. I know there are a lot of people that just love getting into the end times stuff, but uh, honestly, I'm not one of them. Uh, stuff that is going to happen at some point in the future Uh, that nobody really knows for certain exactly how it's all going to go down. I mean, that that just doesn't light my fire the way discovering things that we have in Christ now does. 
Um, I, I really feel like my job is to get everybody ready for what's going to happen in the end because if you're not ready for it, it doesn't matter what you believe about it or what you know about it. And so I just, I just like making sure we're ready. Um, and the other reason I wouldn't just really choose to pick it is because I know the potential that it has to create a little controversy within a church. I mean, if you ask 10 Christians what they belief is, what their belief is concerning the rapture and the return of Christ, you're probably going to get several different answers. And there's some people who tend to be pretty passionate about whatever belief they have about those things and offended at those who see it differently than them. And let me just start off and say that this church does not have an official position when it comes to some of the details of eschatology. There are some doctrines that we do feel are important for us to to, to have an official position on, but this isn't one of them. Uh, We understand that there are some things where it is okay for people who belong to the same church to have different views on and to be able to discuss those views without there being any division or anything like that. And and end time stuff is one of those things. It's okay if we don't see eye to eye on all the details of that, and it shouldn't be a source of division. Um, So if you have a certain belief about how it's all going to go down in the end, and you hear me or someone else say something that is different from the way that you see it, and that causes you to get angry and offended, or you allow that to create any division at all, I'm just going to tell you right now that that your passion is grossly misplaced. Grossly misplaced. There are certain doctrines that you should be very passionate about, but this isn't really one of them. Not to the point where you let it cause division between you and a brother and, or a sister. Uh, there are many things about the way that God will eventually consummate history that, like I said, nobody knows for sure how it's all going to happen except God. Uh, even the timing of it. Jesus said he doesn't even know. Only the Father does. When it comes to many of the details concerning the end times, I mean, there are several possibilities of how different things can happen in each of those possibilities have their valid points. And so we should be open about that rather than so dogmatic about what our particular position is on it. So if you have a belief that is different from what I'm going to present today, that is okay. I mean, really, I'm not going to hold it against you for being wrong. (laughs) <laughs> no, it, it, it's all right, okay? So everybody just calm down. If Just be open to what we're going to look at. Now, even though the church doesn't have an official position on what we're going to look at specifically here in this text, I do, at least in regards to what's here in First Thessalonians 4. My goal this morning is not to convince you of my position. That's not my purpose at all. My goal is for you to examine whatever it is that you believe and hold that up to Scripture. Hold it up to Scripture. Because here's the deal. As a pastor of this church, I want our beliefs to be based not on what we've always been taught, 
not on what's popular and not on what sounds good, but based solely on Scripture and what God's Word said. It says, and so I'm going to direct us there and let it just hopefully speak for itself. So I encourage you, whatever your belief has been in the past about this, be open to not what I have to say about it necessarily, but what God's Word says about it. All right? So here we go. Eschatology, study of the end times. Of course, it involves many different variables and subtopics, and, but I'm going to limit it strictly to what Paul is saying in this text. So I'm not going to turn this into some study on the book of Revelation. Uh, next week, we'll look at something else. We're going to look closer at the return of Jesus as we go into chapter 5 because that's what Paul does there. But today, I'm going to limit it to what has commonly been referred to as the rapture. So apparently there was a lot of discussion going on in the Thessalonian church about what happens to their loved ones, what happens to Christians when they die, and so Paul addresses that. He says again in verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Being asleep was a common metaphor that was used back then to refer to people who were dead. Um, Jesus himself used that when he was talking about Lazarus being dead. It's just simply a, a, a metaphor for death. It is not referring to some special state that we enter into between death and the return of Jesus, which is a belief that is out there. No, when you die, if you are a Christian, your spirit goes straight to heaven. 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 8 says that when we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. But when we are absent from this physical body, we are at home with the Lord. Now, let's read on. Verse 14, he says, If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And so he's saying those that are dead, those Christians that are dead when Jesus returns, their spirit is with them, but there's something else that's going to happen first with them before it happens to us who are alive. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So when Jesus returns, Christians who have died will have their physical bodies resurrected and united once again with their spirit. And that's going to happen whether you are embalmed, cremated, whatever. It's a miraculous event that God is going to make happen. The physical body will be resurrected and united with our spirit. Okay, now verse 17. We get into the part of the text that tends to cause the most debate. He says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we shall always be with the Lord. This, of course, is where the term rapture comes from. It's the believers who are still alive and on the earth when Jesus returns, being what Paul describes as caught up to meet the Lord in the air. The debate comes from when exactly that is going to happen. And the most 
popular belief that has taken hold primarily in the church in the United States is that that happens before the great tribulation that Jesus says will come upon the earth. This is sometimes referred to as the secret rapture of the saints. And even though it is very popular in the American church, that belief didn't even exist until the late 18, or 1700s is when it was first introduced and began gaining traction in the 1800s. This is not a belief that the early church held. In fact, they thought, most Christians back then, they believed they were going through the tribulation that Jesus spoke of, especially during the reign of the Roman emperors Nero and Domitian. The persecution that those two men brought down on the church was some of the worst atrocities ever committed on humans in all of history. And there are some today who even believe that that's exactly what Jesus was talking about. That, that the tribulation that he talks about in Matthew 24 was fulfilled during that time. Now, I understand where they're coming from on that, but there are some reasons why I don't believe that. I think that is something that is still to come. But the doctrine of a pre-tribulation rapture is very new in terms of church history and has been limited primarily to the Western church. You won't find this uh, very popular in other uh, with Christians in other parts of the world. Of course, it got a whole lot more followers here with the wildly popular book series called Left Behind, which came out between 1995 and 2007. There have been videos made, I'm sure many of you have seen, um, for evangelistic purposes that support this doctrine, showing scenes like cars crashing all over the place because the drivers are just suddenly not there anymore or things like an electric razor buzzing and bumping around in the sink because the person that was using it is just disappeared and people all over the world freaking out because a third of the population just inexplicably vanishes. All this going on while the song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready, plays in the background. Countless youth groups and churches have played those videos and then given an invitation after showing them to people who are now absolutely scared to death. And those invitations usually get a great response because why? Nobody wants to be left behind, right? I even played a video like that during some of my days as a youth pastor because at one time I did believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. And I can tell you the only reason I believed it is because it was simply what I had heard the most. Simply what I had heard the most. And I had seen those videos like that that were pretty powerful and throwing up scriptures that seemed to support it but were taken out of context. I'd be like, yeah, that's what's going to happen. But then the more I studied started studying scriptures for myself, the more I realized that that didn't really line up. And as much as I would love for that to be true, I just can't justify it with what I find in the Bible. Now, some of you are probably thinking, but we just read a text there in 1 Thessalonians that says that's what's going to happen. Did it though? On the surface, yeah, it does seem like that's what's going on, but there's a few assumptions that have to be made in order for that text to to, to support that belief. 
First of all, what it does say is that we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. What it doesn't say is what's going to happen after that. And so the assumption that we make is that we just go on to heaven from there. But the text does not say that. And so how can we know? Well, let's let the Bible interpret the Bible and see if there's anything else that we can kind of compare this to. The Greek word that Paul used there in verse 17 that was translated to greet has a distinct nuance attached to it, especially the way it was used back then. It was used in the context of a custom back then of publicly welcoming a ruler or dignitary or some important person upon their arrival to a city. And the custom was the people would go meet them outside of that city and then return with them back to it. This word was only used two other times in the New Testament. The first one is in Matthew 25 where Jesus gives the parable of the ten virgins. And that parable includes the Jewish tradition of going out to meet the bridegroom and then returning back with him. The other place it's used is in Acts 28.15 where it talks about Paul going to Rome. And it says that the brethren there, when they heard that Paul was near, went out to meet him. And then they turned around and came back. To Rome with him. So you've got that word being used only in those two instances, and then here in 1 Thessalonians 4:17. It would be hard to imagine that Paul had some intention for using that word other than what it was commonly known to be used for. It is highly likely that he used it exactly the way that people understood it. Back then, which would mean that we meet Jesus as he is arriving for his second coming. We meet him there and then continue to return here with him. And here's something else to think about. If that's not what happens, then that indicates that there are really two returns of Jesus. One where he comes kind of halfway there and calls us up. And then another one where he comes all the way to earth and and does what he's going to do. But nowhere else in scripture does Jesus ever hint of there being two returns of him or even one and a half. No, there is going to be one return of the king where he takes care of all the business of consummating history. There's one other primary text that people use to support this idea of a pre-tribulation rapture. If you have your Bibles, turn back over to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24 is one of the most used and studied chapters in the Bible when it comes to eschatology because this is what Jesus was saying what was going to come. There's a couple of things we're going to look at in this chapter, but the first one is going to be what he says beginning in verse 36, Matthew 24. It says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. 
Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Of course, this is where we get the phrase left behind from. But again, on closer inspection of this, I believe we'll see something different. And for this one, to look at it closer, you don't have to parse any Greek words. All you got to do is just pay attention to the context that this is written in. The key is when Jesus says, just like the days of Noah. He says back then people were eating and drinking and just going about with business as usual of life. And then he says they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. Who got taken? The ones who were not in the ark. And then he compares that to the day that he returns and says one will be taken and one will be left. If we keep that within the context of the days of Noah, which is what Jesus was doing, it is why he was using that whole analogy there, then the ones taken are not the raptured people of God, but the ones who reject him. The flood took the sinful people away, and Noah and his family were left in the safety of the ark. In the same way, the unbelievers will be taken away by God's judgment and the believers will be left in the safety of Christ. I think this becomes even clearer if we look back a little further in the chapter. From verse 15 to verse 28, Jesus is talking about the tribulation that is to come. Verse 21, he says, For there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Now, he says the tribulation's coming, and then look what he says starting in verse 29. This is Jesus himself talking. He says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, The sun will be darkened and their moon will not give its light and the stars will fall away from the sky and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So he says this is going to happen after the tribulation. The elect of God will be left and gathered by his angels rather, while the rest will be taken away by God's wrath. Just like in the days of Noah. My friend Dudley Hall wrote a book called Glad to be Left Behind. I haven't read it, but you get the gist of what it means from that right there. But... Look, set aside just specific texts and look at the overall counsel of Scripture. This whole idea that we'll be just zapped up before things get bad just doesn't hold water when you look at the overall counsel of Scripture. Because for one, being saved from suffering doesn't line up with what the Bible says about suffering in general and God's, God's view of suffering in the lives of his people. Just listen to these verses. I'm just going to read off here. 2 Corinthians 1.5 says that the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. 2 Timothy 1.8, join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Hebrews 2.10, for it was fitting for him 
for whom are all things and through whom are all things, to bring many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. First Peter 4, 1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. And then he says in verse 12 and 14, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Paul said in Philippians 3 that his goal in life was to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. And finally, in Revelation 2.10, Jesus says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, I know all these verses are not referring to the actual tribulation, but this whole idea that God's just going to, that that his goal is to spare us from suffering just doesn't line up with what we read about suffering and his perspective of it in Scripture. And some might say, well, the suffering of the tribulation is going to be a whole lot worse than the suffering that that's talking about there. Yeah, that may be true. But it doesn't make it any more biblically sound. Two Sundays ago, I said that in order for something to be true, it has to be true for everyone in every part of the world. I'm sure that you've either heard or read stories about some of the atrocities that have been committed by members of ISIS against Christians over in that part of the Middle East. I've read accounts where parents were forced to watch their children being tortured to death. Kids as young as four years old, forced to watch that before the parents themselves were excruciatingly tortured and died. So just, can you imagine going up to someone in the middle of something like that and going, but we're going to be raptured out of here before things get real bad. Really? Really? Or saying to those Christians under Nero, saying that to them when he was using them for human torches to light his palace gardens. God's going to save us from suffering. And that's one of the reasons I believe the pre-tribulation doctrine has been effective, primarily limited to the United States. We... Christians here have not endured suffering the way many Christians have in other parts of the world. And so I think we kind of get this mentality that if God has spared us this long, then surely he's going to keep sparing us and save us from it when it gets real bad in the end, right? No. Nowhere does God promise that he is going to do that. The doctrine of a pre-tribulation rapture, I believe, contains some of the same elements that makes the prosperity gospel so appealing to people in the American church. 
the belief that God just wants us to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous and comfortable and, and not suffer. I mean, you cannot seriously read the Bible and think that those are high priorities in the kingdom of God. They're not. They're eternal things that are vastly more important than, to him than our temporary physical well-being. And think about this. If I'm wrong and we are raptured up before things get bad, you think I'm going to be disappointed about that? (laughs) Not for a second. I couldn't be more happy to be wrong about something. But for those who believe that they're going to be spared from all the suffering, if, if they are wrong, I'm talking about a big disappointment. I mean, that's the kind of stuff right there that would shake your faith to the core. And that's one of the reasons why I believe Christians will be left here for it. You see, Jesus talks about a time that's going to come when the sheep are separated from the goats and the chaff is separated from the grain. I've talked before about how there are a lot of people who are Christians in name only. Churches full of people, especially here in the Bible Belt, who identify as Christian, but in reality, they're, they're not at all. Jesus is talking about a time where they are going to be exposed for what they really are. And I believe the tribulation is going to be a catalyst for that, and here's why. See, the Bible teaches that the ultimate evidence of true salvation is enduring faith, faith to the end. In John 8, 31, Jesus said, If you continue in my word, you are truly disciples of mine. In Matthew 10, 22, he said, He who endures to the end will be saved. Hebrews 3, 14, We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Those who are truly saved are going to maintain their faith all the way to the end. The good news about that is if you are truly saved, then God has ensured that you are going to maintain it. He is going to ensure that. Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Not he might perfect it, not he will perfect it if you obey all the right rules and jump through all the right hoops. No, He who began the work in you of salvation is going to perfect it. Your faith will remain. It's easy to fake or claim saving faith when things are the way they are now. I mean, a lot of us don't really know the difference between those who are and those who aren't, even though they both claim. It's easy to fake that when things are good, but when things really begin to hit the fan, those are going to fall like a house of cards. A faith and name only will not endure. It can't. They will fall away from what they claim, and I believe the tribulation God is going to use to bring that about. In several prophecies concerning the end times, it talks about God sending down fire from heaven. And I believe that is more a a, a fire of refinement than anything else. You see, when you refined metal with fire, you burn out all the impurities until what's left is the pure metal. The thing about that is that the pure metal goes through the fire just like the impurities do. 
the impurities are burned off and the, the pure metal r- remains. There is a refinement that God is going to bring to this world. And for those of us who have been purified by the blood of Jesus, we will remain. Our faith will endure to the end and we will live with him forever. Now, start to wrap this up here. My intention, of course, is not to scare anyone. I believe anybody that uses fear as a tool for evangelism is very misguided. And if you're secure in your relationship with Christ, this shouldn't scare you at all. Because if you're in Christ, it's going to be good no matter what. I mean, it's going to be good. See, for Christians, I believe the tribulation can be likened to some other things that we see in Scripture, like the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were not prevented from going through the fiery furnace. No, they went through it, but they remained because Jesus was right there with them. Or, Or Daniel, who was not spared from entering in the lion's den. No, he went into the lion's den, but he remained. He survived it because God was with him. Or even Jesus, whom after asking the Father, let this cup pass from me, it wasn't. He had to drink every drop as he suffered and died on the cross. But he now sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling over everything that his blood paid for. There's this pattern all throughout the Bible, of suffering leading to glory. This refinement, this increasing in faith. Why would we think that that wouldn't apply to us as well? God never promises to keep us comfortable and to spare us from suffering. What he does promise is that when we do suffer, because he says you will, he's going to be right there in the middle of it with us. And that's why Paul said at the beginning of this, he didn't want them to be uninformed so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. There's one thing that can never be taken away from those who are in Christ, and that is hope. The confident assurance that we belong to a sovereign God who works all things after the counsel of his will and all things for our good and his glory. And he is constantly leading us to pure joy. The beginning of the text, Paul said, I want you to have hope. And then at the end, he said, comfort one another with these words. So this whole text is bracketed by hope and comfort. That's what we have in Christ, no matter how hard life gets. Because it, it, whether you're going through your own tribulation right now, or even if we're going through it in this lifetime, the hope we have is this, that no matter what we're going through, no matter how hard it is, our ears are going to hear the sound of a trumpet blowing. It is going to split the sky. And our faith will finally become sight. Next time we're going to look closer at that trumpet and the return of the king in chapter 5. But I want to leave you with this. Say, okay, Jason, you're talking about something that It's going to happen in the future and may or may not happen in our lifetime. What what do I 
what do I take from here in that? I was asking this to God, praying about it, and I believe that it is this. Like what I just said, if you're going through something right now, no matter how bad and horrible and horrific it looks, even though you can't really feel it emotionally, God wants you to know that he is right there in the middle of it with you. He's there. He says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you, no matter what. And so in the middle of whatever you're going through, there is hope. And there is hope for us who remain for the rest of this life. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the hope that we do have that is in you, for those who have been made new by the blood of Jesus. And Lord, I do pray for those right now who just needed to know that you are near, that you are with them. God, in the midst of the pain and the suffering that they are going through right now, that you would just remind them that you don't allow anything into their life without it first being sifted through your hands and that everything that happens is for your great purposes, that you are good, that you are for us and not against us. Even in the midst of something as hard as the tribulation, you are for your people and not against us. Lord, I pray that we would be able to just see all of life from that perspective. From that perspective, God. That you are for us. Lord, for those who you know are not ready for that day when that trumpet sounds, Lord, would you call them to you today? Would you save them? Lord, those who are Christians, just in name only, show them that. Lord, I pray that it won't take the tribulation for that to be obvious. But your Holy Spirit can bring that to them right now. Lord, we thank you. That no matter what, Lord, we already know that we're on the winning side. That no matter how it all goes down in the end, we win because we are with you, the ultimate champion. And for that, Lord, we praise you and thank you. In your name we pray, amen.